Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're joined by very special guest, Joe Pine. Joe is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and management advisor to Fortune 500 companies and entrepreneurial startups alike. In 1999, Joe and his partner, James H. Gilmore, wrote the best-selling book, The Experience Economy, Work is a Theater and Every Business is a Stage, which demonstrates how goods and services are no longer enough. What companies must offer today are experiences, memorable events that engage each customer in an inherently personal way. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan and Rochelle. Pleasure to be here. Well, our heads are both exploding (laughs) from having... Over the the Fourth of July holiday, both of us were enjoying the experience economy. You mean you're in, you were reading it, or that you were having such great experiences that you knew you were immersed <laughs> on July Fourth in the experience economy? I was I was absolutely immersed in it because not only was I reading the physical copy and the Kindle version, but I was also listening to it. Wow, you're uh, <laughs> you're, you're multimedia, right? Especially listening to it was super engaging, but I found myself getting so many ideas that I was distracted from listening to it and have to keep backing up and keep backing okay. up and keep backing up. So uh, not to fanboy too hard, but it's an amazing book. People should definitely check it out. One of the things about the book for someone like me or Rochelle who, or the listener who'd be reading it is that the examples are, you know, for your kind of clients, Fortune 500 companies that, that you know, maybe a, a national food chain or an international airline. And they have tons of locations, tons of employees, all, all sorts of management structure and hierarchy. But a lot of people listening to this show, that's not really representative of them. They're either soloists or they have a small team and maybe they do their business mostly online, if not all online. What I'm hoping to get is some examples of applying the concepts in the experience economy into a business like ours. The amazing thing, though, to think about is that despite the fact that all these large companies you mentioned have all these people and have all these resources, right, despite that fact, they're still able to create a great experience, which should be easy for any small company. (laughs) I think it would be it's an important piece of context. If you could start off with the, the progression of economic value and how we went from sort of commodities to experiences and transformations after that. Okay, sure. Um, you practically did it right there. Just missed a couple. Uh, but you know, the, what the, the basic framework in, in the book, The Experience Economy, is this progression of economic value that talks about how we've gone from commodities, the basis of the agrarian economy that lasted for millennia, to goods, right? physical, tangible things we touch and feel, which are the basis of the industrial economy, and then to services, intangible activities that are performed on behalf of an individual person. And then what's happened in the uh, 21st century is that we've shifted into an experience economy, an economy where experiences are now the predominant economic offering, that experiences are what consumers and increasingly businesses are looking for today. And experiences are memorable events that engage each and every individual in an inherently personal way. Right? And it's creating that memory and engaging them inside that creates a, an experience. And the, the most important thing to understand about the framework is that experiences are, in fact, a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods. And that's what so many people miss. Even when they've read the book, they still miss that. And they talk about the experience of your product or the experience around your service. <laughs> And and no, 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 experiences are the thing itself (laughs) Uh, that that subsume all of the the other offerings. 
then since you already mentioned it, in chapter nine of the book, we do actually, again, ask what's next. We're all, you know, always thinking about, uh, about what's next. We don't want to say, oh, this is the ultimate this or the ultimate that. But um, we did that with experiences because we recognize that, you know, in the experience economy, goods and services become commoditized. It's both cause and effect of companies shifting into experiences. And, and, you know, where, where things are bought on price, price, price. And, and eventually that's the way with experiences, that, that experiences can be commoditized as well. In fact, they might be the easiest economic offering to commoditize because the second time you have an experience, it doesn't tend to be as good as the first. And the third time, not as good as that. And when you get customers saying, been there, done that, right, that's the hallmark of a uh, commoditized uh, experience. And perhaps seen first in the theme restaurant industry, <laughs> where uh, you know where they just don't make enough of an effort to make it worth going a second time, and so it you know really becomes you do it once and then been there done that. So so there is one more level beyond experiences, where you in fact use the experiences as the raw material to guide people to change. Right? You, know, you know the term life transforming experiences, right? Experiences that change us in some way, help us achieve our aspirations, help us become who we want to become, uh, and and applies to businesses as well. That businesses hire companies to help them achieve their business aspirations, the outcomes that they are looking for, and that too is a distinct economic offering. My partner Jim Gilmore and I call it transformations. Now, transformations is as distinct from experiences as experiences are from services. And it is where you use experiences, again, as raw material, generally not one life-transforming experience, but generally a series of experiences that over time get people to achieve their aspirations. And that's what, that, that's what transformations are all about. I'd like to contextualize that a little bit for folks. So the, the experience, would you say Disney is probably one of the best examples? Disney, like the parks? Sure. Yeah, of- yeah. It's one of the premier experience stages in the world, I always say. Okay, and there's another one I think that's a little bit uh, a little bit more bite sized, I would say, which is Build a Bear. Could you give people a quick idea of what Build a Bear is if they don't have kids like like I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, Build a Bear is a great place where you where where you do end up with a physical good, right? And it's the it's the teddy bear uh, or it's some other stuffed animal. But what they did is they made the creation of your personal bear into an experience. So that each consumer is intimately involved with that, where they get to choose the bear or again, other animal it could be a dinosaur or, or something else that they want to have stuffed. They work with the retail associates with the stuffing of it, decide how much stuff do you want? Do you want a looser bear? Do you want a tighter bear and so forth? Uh, they pick out a heart from a bin and place it inside. So this is now intimately involved in the creation of this bear. <laughs> you place it inside of the bear so you know that that heart is there, right? You sort of kiss it and make a wish on it. Then uh, it's stitched up for you. You get to pick out the clothing, the uh, you know, any any other accoutrement of, of it uh, that you want. They even create a virtual bear for you that can live in a, in a, in a virtual world. So it's an entire experience. You know, it's not just going into what uh, Toys R Us, may they rest in peace, and, and seeing this, this huge warehouse of merchandise say, okay, I want that one among all these other ones that are identical. It's going in and making this bear yourself. So it is quite an experience. The founder of the company, uh, she's now retired, Maxine Clark. She used to be an executive with, I think it was Payless Shoes, but she had this idea for creating a Build-A-Bear, 
And she had this business plan. She shopped it around to venture capitalists and investors all over the place and couldn't get funding for it. And then she told us that she actually read our July 1998, it was, article in the Harvard Business Review on Welcome to the Experience Economy. So this was a year before the book came out. And she said that it gave her the courage to continue to go after. She knew she was onto something because she was building an experience economy business. And she eventually did get funding and was able to, to build the business. So, uh, you know, it's a, a neat little story we like. <laughs> That's excellent. So there's one thing I want to point out to the listener is that having to go in and do the work to assemble the bear is actually worse service in a way. Right. <laughs> it's almost like putting that effort into it makes the experience better, but the service worse. So it's it's almost a paradox, but it makes sense. Well, yeah, it's interesting. There are other cases where I, I, I point out that something is a worse service, but a better experience, but I hadn't thought about that in Build-A-Bear. So I may use that myself. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. I feel special now. Um, <laughs> Let's see how many more ideas you can give me. Uh, yeah, this is now, and now it's improving my experience. So uh, Rochelle and I were talking a little bit before the show, and we both had a very similar experience reading the book. The lion's share of the book is about different ways that you can turn your business into a theater stage in a sense. Well, in a pretty literal sense, where you're either on stage or off stage and things that are on stage need to be scripted and acted and you play your role. As I was going through those parts of the book, when it got, especially when it got really tactical and specific, I would keep on stopping. How can I, you know, I, you know, I teach courses online. Like how am I going to have a smell? I could suppose I could send chocolates or something in advance, but it was enjoyable. I was thinking, like, how can I do this? There's got to be a way I can do this. And, and then when I got to the transformation section, I was like, oh, well, this is what I already do. <laughs> yes. I think I could do a better job at the transformation, which is what I'm trying. That's what I'm, you know, I do coaching and like coaching to me is like the ultimate transformation. thing. Any and all coaches are in the transformation business. Right. But I don't think I do a great job of the experience part. So I, and it's, you, your book seems to say that you can't just skip over that. Right. What are the first things that come to mind when you're thinking about creating a better experience Let's say with a, an online course, it's like real time and people are chatting in a room, but it's not physically in a room. You know, it's so interesting you say that because we just came out with our own online course called uh, On Stage, you know, and, and this is for frontline workers who are interacting directly with customers and they can often be the employees of large companies or small companies or even uh, we have an individual price that you can buy it just, just for yourself as, you know, even if you're a one person company. And so you do have to, uh, you know, make an experience in what you're doing. It's not live training, which can be very different. All of these are built on top of each other, right? Transformations are built from the set of experiences. It's required to, to change because as the phrase goes, we're all the product of our experiences. We, we only ever change through the experiences that we have. So they're built on top of that. Well, experiences are built on top of services. You need all these activities that go on to make that that overall experience happen. Uh, services are built on top of goods. You need the physical things that are part of that service, whether it's the tools that you're using to fix somebody's car, the, the, the laundry equipment you're using to uh, clean somebody's clothes, the pots and pans that you're using to fix somebody a meal, whatever it is. You need all those goods. And the goods, of course, are made out of commodities, right? The things that we extract out of the ground. 
whether that's iron ore or whether that's wheat and corn, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense. So, so you do have to think about when you're trading that experience online is what are the, the services that you need to make sure. So you need to make sure, for example, that there is no time lag, that, that everything is flowing smoothly. There's not uh, any glitches in, in what you're doing. You need to make sure that the microphone, you know, that we're using right now, that, that, that the, the line that we're creating over the over the internet is fast and secure and and effective, and the same thing with the, with the goods that you that you use within that. Then you need to think about the experience, recognizing that yeah, it may be easier to create an experience in a physical place, right? But the physical place, whether it's a retail store, whether it's a theme park like you mentioned with with Disney, whether it's a cafe, whether it's an office that you're meeting somebody in. There's a lot more you can do with the physicality of it, with engaging all five senses is one of the principles that we have. But nonetheless, that physical place is a medium for the experience. In the same way, so is a phone line, a medium for an experience. If you're on a, in a contact center or if you're interacting with clients over the phone, same way is this podcast, a medium for the experience. And online training where you add not just audio, now you've got video that you can do. And so you can often use other experiences that use that medium. Now, obviously, right, movies and TV have been fantastic experiences for decades using just audio and video. So it's the same thing when you're doing uh, online training, right? You got audio, you got video. How do you make it a great experience? Well, you need to make it engaging, right? You need to make sure they're engaged and they're, and they're not bored with what you're doing. You need to design all of the elements to come together. You need the structure of it to have drama. You, you know, what you don't want to do is have somebody droning on in a monotone voice for very long where they, you know, where they sort of start to, to, to snooze off. So you've got to put the intonation in it. You got to emphasize words. You got to get excited every once in a while. Uh, so that your listeners do as well. And th those are all theater techniques, right? That, that it is, uh, as you pointed out, you know, the, the subtitle to the original book was The Work is Theater in Every Business is Stage. Yes, we mean that literally. And again, again, despite the fact that so many read the chapter uh, six, right, that says work is theater. It's the name of the chapter. And people come back and talk about the Pine and Gilmore theater metaphor. Is it? No, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it not work as theater. Right? It's work is theater that whenever you or your workers are in front of customers, you're on stage, you're acting, and you need to act in a way that engages the audience. Whether you know it or not, whether you do it well or not, you need to act. That's the key thing. And, and related to your question earlier about big company versus small company and that sort of thing, one of the answers I always, I always talk about when that becomes an issue is understand that embracing theater as a model requires zero capital equipment. <laughs> It just requires understanding that you're on stage. And then there's a set of acting principles that you can use, uh, some of which we talk about in the, in the book. We've had clients that have gone to improv classes, for example. Second City does, in, in, you know, in Chicago, I think there's more business teaching acting to businesses and working with them in workshops and so forth than they do off the consumers that come to their shows. Because so often people do understand that. And, and so you know, take acting classes if it's really something you want to get into. A lot of people are naturals and they, they do it naturally. But even without the classes, you, know, you can do book reading. You can, do, you can watch our, our onstage training and take that. You can take the principles that we talk about uh, in the book and apply them to your 
business and your interactions with your customers. So in case anybody in the audience is rolling their eyes about <laughs> taking an improv class, <laughs> I just want to say I, I took an improv class once just for fun, and it is so much fun. Yeah. It's a great thing to do, even if you're just looking for something new to do. It's super fun. And the other thing I want to touch on is the onstage versus offstage thing to kind of like, like I, you've basically ruined every restaurant experience for me from now on. <laughs> because so just the other day, I went into a restaurant and I'm, I'm reading the book in the restaurant. It was a shift change and the new bartender comes hustling in. She looked like she was running late. She's all sweaty. You know, she's like agitated and right in front of everybody, you know, just like right standing right next to me. To, and it was a fine. I wasn't upset or anything by it. It was fine. She was not having the best day. But then she, you know, she does all of her stuff, puts her apron on and she gets behind the bar. And it's like, now the smile comes on. <laughs> it's like, hi, can I help you? And it's like, do you think I didn't just see <laughs> right, you? <laughs> right. <laughs> You, you just changed right next to me, you know? Yeah, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Yeah, but the man in front of the curtain. behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. It was just such a concrete example of... I will say it's still better than her having doing all that beforehand. And then when she turns to you, she doesn't smile. And this is That nice. would have been... <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 At least yes. better than that. Yes. I imagine that's an experience that many people have had where whatever it is, there's a clerk and they're in line and the clerk's not paying attention or whatever because the clerk's like, oh, I'm on my break and the, everyone's just supposed to know that. It seems pretty clear and, and I imagine that I can think of ways to apply that to my business even though my business doesn't have retail locations where the lead up to a podcast episode or the the sort of, you know, before the video course gets started, you know, the video uh, webinar gets started, you, know, you don't want to see people checking your teeth or whatever. You know, there's like, right. it's just, you're on, like you're on stage. And it's this, I mean, maybe this is, I have a background in music performance. So to me, this is like sort of obvious, but I think to probably to a lot of people, it's, it's not, they think like, oh, you know, I just need to be on when I'm on. Well, and a lot of our audience, they're experts at something. And so they're used to giving advice. So the, a lot of people just think, well, that's all I have to do is I just yep. have to answer the questions or I have to ask my client questions so that I can give them the answers. You mentioned, Jonathan, a lot of people might be scared of thinking about theater. And I am speaking tomorrow or next week Thursday to a, to a hospital. And they wanted to see what I was going to talk about. And I, you know, I talked about principles of acting. They're like, ooh, I don't think you should talk about principles of acting. <laughs> you know, we may not get a good reception. So Rochelle, as you pointed out, you do have to do these things. You do have to talk about it. So what I did is I, I switched from talking about principles of acting, right? I cut that slide and I, did an, and I did another thing that I often do, which is to recognize that one of the key differences between services and experiences that relate to theater is, is what versus how, right? So you were, so you were talking about the how, the, the what, excuse me, the functional things you got to do. And isn't it enough just to do those things, right? Just do those functional activities that I have to do that service the account or whatever they might be. Well, yeah, if all you want to aspire to be is, is, is a good service. But when you turn that what into how, you think intentionally about how you go about doing those things. That's how you can go into an experience. That's how you can embrace theater and with the, the intentionality of it, which is really what acting is. Acting is simply being intentional about everything that you do, about understanding how you do what you do. And, and, and that's one of the key things that, again, any person, whether in a one-person company, a three-person company, or a 3,000-person company, can do to embrace acting and thereby create a better experience because you're going to be more engaging. Could you take a second to dispel 
some myths around the idea of acting as fake or, or <laughs> that you're putting on a, uh, yep. that you're being fake or lying yep. or, yeah. well, uh, you know, a lot of people think that my wife being one, she's sort of like, you know, hates actors. She like knew somebody in high school became an actor. Oh, never liked that person. <laughs> you know? And because she does think it's being fake or phony and, and it's not, it's acting is fundamentally choosing. It's choosing what parts of yourself to reveal in front of yourself. So, you know, we all know we act differently in front of our parents and our kids, in front of our boss, if we have one, than our colleagues, uh, in front of strangers, than in front of friends, in front of clients, than, you know, coworkers or suppliers. It's not that we're being fake or phony in any one of those, although, of course, we may be, and, and many people almost always are, and, and most people are some of the time, but it's that we intentionally choose what parts of ourselves to reveal. I'll give you an example. Um, that, you know, Ritz-Carlton Hotels, uh, which is a, you know, a great experience, one that's always customized to you. One of their signatures is they want people always to say, you know, my pleasure, you know, rather than like, no worries, or okay, I'll do that, right? It's like, it's my pleasure. But the problem is, is it, it, it became rote. And it became where that's not what I, how I feel. So what, what you don't, you don't want to say, in most all cases, there are exceptions, but you don't really want to tell them what words to say, Right? You want to tell them what emotion to get across. You want to tell them uh, what their intention is for, for what they're doing and then let them put it in their own words. Right, Scripting things out in a way that is not how they would say it will generally yield uh, phony acting. But letting them, letting them do it from their heart, but knowing what it is their intention that they're trying to get across, like being welcoming, uh, for example, in a hotel, then that enables them to be, you know, authentically act. So my favorite example of this is bedside manner with doctors. I feel like it's a pretty common experience to have good and bad experiences in that regard. Like so the doctor could be great, like they could have totally fixed me. But if they do it in a way that's very dismissive, and they sort of don't treat you like a person along the way, it's upsetting. And it just doesn't feel good. I mean, I suppose in certain situations, it could actually impede your healing. But even just taking my, my son in is, you know, smashed his head on the floor and take him in for an x-ray. And it's like the doctor had an amazing bedside manner and, and she, she could have done all the exact same things acting like a jerk, or she could do the things acting like a nice person. However you want to, I don't know. It's not a great way to put it, but, but I think people can have been in that situation or can at least imagine a situation where the presentation of the service or the delivery of the service can be presented in a way that is a, a good experience or a bad experience, even if the same outcome is reached. Right. And say, and now you've already given me another idea for this hospital I'm working with on how to present <laughs> okay. good acting. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Bedside manner seems like the. Yeah. Often with doctors, the impression you get is there is that their intention in saying or doing something with you is in order to get on to the next patient. <laughs> right. And that's not effective rather than be with you as a, as a human being. So since we've, we've been sort of dancing around transformations and outcomes, which is something we talk about uh, pretty regularly on the show, you have like a really radical stance on this, which I love. It's even more radical than me. <laughs> I am a big fan of value pricing and, and pricing outcomes, and that includes the whole experience, everything, the decreased risk, all that. Early in the book, you say something to the effect of, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you say something to the effect of, if the hospital doesn't heal you, why should you pay them? Yep. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's bold. 
<laughs> so, do you, I mean, do you literally mean that? I mostly literally mean that. There are exceptions. But with transformations, the customer is the product. The customer is a product that the inputs you do, the activities you do, the functional things that you do, the what's don't matter unless the customer achieves the aspiration that they want. In healthcare, a couple of things. One is that's not always possible, right? You need to recognize that. It's not always possible that you will survive the cancer. It's not always possible that you, to use an old Jack Benny joke, you'll be able to play the violin again. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's not always possible that you'll totally heal and have the same physical health that you did before an accident or an illness occurs. But that doesn't mean we can't focus on what are the outcomes that this person wants. It's also true that when, and particularly when the first case happens, is that our aspirations are not always to become more healthy. Or to be to get back to where it was, like you know, for example, I remember when my mother-in-law, you know, was diagnosed with like stage four pancreatic cancer, and it's like they know that they can't help you live long, right? It's just not possible in that particular disease. You know, they talked about different possibles of treatments with radiation and chemo that to extend life, you know, but and and here's what the quality of life might be and so forth. And she told them, and I thought this was very good of her. She told them, she said, look, I understand this is the situation, this is the fate, but my oldest granddaughter is getting married in six months. And what I want is to live for that six months and look beautiful at the wedding. Can you make that happen? <laughs> and so that's how they get, it wasn't to live long, it was to live long enough, right? And to not in a way that all her hair was falling out and whatever, that she would look beautiful at the wedding. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, right? The wedding happened. She looked beautiful. It was great. And two weeks later, she died, right? She had achieved her aspiration. And that's often the case. And, and knowing that just asking the questions that would lead you to understand what the real aspiration here would change your view and how, how you interact with people. But, but in the end analysis, that because the customer is the product, it really is the outcomes that that, that people want. That's the way it is with all transformations. Inputs don't matter, only outcomes. What if you disagree with their aspirations? Do you, do you <laughs> okay. simply not take them on? Or yes. Do you... yes, that's exactly what you do. So I think of transformations as three-stage process with a with a stage zero as well. You know, as the transformations are about number one, diagnosis, to use a medical term, right? Apply it to anything. Diagnosis. Who is this particular person, company, client? What do they aspire to become and where are they today? And then you can design the set of experiences, phase two, that will help them achieve that aspiration. And then phase three is follow through, which is not the same as follow up, you know, hi, how you doing? But follow through is ensuring that the aspiration takes hold. You know, if my aspiration, for example, is to quit smoking, and I go through, uh, you know, like my quit through um, GlaxoSmithKline, right, that builds it around their, their Nicorette gum and that, that, you know, the smoking sensation program. And it's an eight-week program. And, and if I go through that eight-week program uh, and then six weeks late, and I quit smoking, but six weeks later I light up again, did I really achieve my aspiration? Did I really quit smoking? You need that follow through. You can't just leave them and say, okay, we're done until you're ensured that that transformation is going to be sustained through time. But phase zero, use another medical term, is really sort of triage. 
And it has those two elements of one is, do they have the right aspiration that maybe, you know, maybe bleed into that diagnosis? Do they have the right aspiration? And you may disagree with their aspiration, or you may think them incapable of it. In which case, one is you can reject them and not take them on as a client. That would be the ethical thing to do, I think, in many cases. Or you can at least take them on part ways where, where you get them to understand you tell you're sort of this mini transformation of understanding that that aspiration is not right for you, or you're not going to be able to, to achieve that. That is the other aspect of triage is that, is this person capable of achieving? Even if the aspiration is all well and good, are they capable of achieving it? You know, I remember years ago, I was taking golf lessons. This was back when we lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut. I was taking golf lessons from a pro there and paying, you know, I don't know, 30 or 35 bucks for each lesson. And uh, he's helped me improve my swing and that. And he, at one point, you know, lesson he asked me, like, what do you do for a living in that? So I told him, well, I write business books. I do speaking, teaching, consulting around the world. And oh, what book? is well, the most famous one's The Experience Economy. And then as soon as I started talking about it, it hit me, right, that this, this is a transformation I'm looking for from him, that I have an aspiration to become a better golfer. And the thing about golfing is you, there's actually a very nice way you can judge how good you are called a handicap system so you can actually measure it and in the moment i, I told him i says look at like you're, you're you should really be in the transformation business you're in the experience business because you're charging me for my time of 30 bucks or whatever to, to be able to take this lesson from you but uh, you know what i really want is i want to become a single digit handicap golfer and, and at the time i was in the 20s right so a single digit handicap golfer and i said i'll tell you what for every lesson you give me, I'll pay you half, right? Instead of 30 bucks an hour or whatever it was, it's 15, right? But you get me down to single digit, I'll give you $5,000. <laughs> <Right? laughs> and the, and, the, and I, mean, I picked the number out of the air, right? And, and the guy, you, you should see, he's like, looks back at me. I don't know if he put his hand on his chin, but that was the, the effect of <laughs> looking at me. And he was doing the triage. Is this guy in front of me capable of becoming a single? Do I have a chance of getting this $5,000, right? And then he said, okay, but then here's what we got to do, right? And he started talking about all these different things that he never mentioned before. Uh, yeah. Right? It wasn't like spending time on the golf course. No, it's practicing. And I'm going to give you a regimen of how I want you to practice. And then we're going to go on the golf course together. And I'm going to teach you course management. Da, 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 da. He never managed, mentioned any of this stuff before when he was happy to get his 30 bucks every time. Right now that his income was was dependent on my outcome, now all of a sudden these different things come out. And that's one of the keys that charging for outcomes causes you to do things differently to ensure that those outcomes happen. When you're creating alignment between exactly. the provider, if that's the right word, and the client. Mm -hmm. Yes. So exactly. and, and check out how and it would have been way more intense for you. Yes. So he, he was going to turn into like Mr. Miyagi. Right, you know? right. Wax on, wax off. Exactly. And, and oh, you're not skipping an appointment, Joe. Right. You, you're showing up. <laughs> right. I'll come to I your house and drag training. you out of bed. That's right. I want that 5000 bucks. When you think about, you know, like personal trainers versus just people who work in a fitness center, right, that are paid to really transform you, will be ones that I'm coming to your house at 6 a.m. If you're not awake, I'm dragging you out of that bed. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You do it because they exactly. recognize the outcomes and inputs. Yeah. So and I've got a story that might be uh, helpful for people. I, so I, I go have our second kid. I gained like 20 pounds. Couldn't stand it. 
I said, finally, you know, I'm not going to the gym. I have a membership. I never go. I'm going to go to a personal trainer. So I've got an appointment twice a week to go to see this guy. And so I go in, they interview me and they say, well, what are your goals? And I said, I want to get, I want to lose 20 pounds and get back down to like my, you know, college weight or whatever. And he was like, do you really care how much you weigh? (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, what if you look like a professional athlete, but you weighed 220? And I'm like, yeah, fine. (laughs) He's like, he changed my metric. That's a good person. Yeah. And, and he's like, stop weighing yourself. Don't weigh yourself anymore. He's like, take pictures of yourself after each workout with your shirt off. That'll be the, the thing to track. I, I like that story because I had the wrong aspiration or I had the wrong metric on the aspiration. I was using like my weight as a proxy for like my clothes will fit good and you know, all that stuff. So I, I think that's interesting, but I could not agree more with the experience that your, your golf pro had of all of a sudden, all of a sudden, if the, if the results, oh, whew, if I need to guarantee these results or not get paid, I'm going to change everything about what I do. And I, I saw that experience with myself when I, I used to bill by the hour 10, 15 years ago. And when I switched over to fixed price projects for software projects, it changes almost everything about what you do. There's also a bonding experience. Joe, I just imagine what went through your head when he looked at you and then decided, yes, right, you could right. be a single he digit golfer. Yes, right. exactly. Exactly. So this does mean, though, dear listener, that you need to get way pickier about who you work with in most in most cases. Most people I work with, at least on my side of the fence, are so desperate for any new clients and they don't have a good pipeline of leads. So they're not, they can't be choosy. And the idea of, of saying to somebody, no, I'm actually, I don't think, I don't think you can achieve these business outcomes. You know, you want me to build this iOS app for you or whatever, but I don't, I think it's a bad idea. Like I just don't believe in it. So I'm not going to take your money. It, it feel, it would feel unethical for me to take your money to build this thing. That's a bad idea. So maybe you can get somebody else to take your money, but right. I'm not going to do it. Right. Right. Again, if you can change their, their, their idea, then that's a good thing. Um, but I think that is a ethical thing to do. And I want to give you one example that I think will apply. This isn't you know, like a one-person company, but it's basically an eight to 10-person company of a consulting company. And it was founded by a, a gentleman who became a friend of mine, Gary Adamson, who read our, our 1998 HBR article, read the book when it came out, came to our Think About events that we did, annual events we did for 20 years, and basically determined that his purpose in life was to help companies become premier experienced stagers. So he created a company called Storizen Studio that basically is a consulting company. And mostly they work with hospitals. Healthcare is, you know, is probably the industry I work in the most because research shows that the better the patient experience, the better the outcome, really directly to what we've been, been talking about. So he created, and, and he came out of the healthcare industry and sort of his wife's like 80% of her clients were from healthcare. And I eventually, I partnered with him and, and worked with him on, on these engagements. And he created an experience design place in Keystone, Colorado. And so it's a 9,200 square foot facility at 9,200 feet above sea level on the green of the sixth hole of the Keystone Ranch course, if I remember right. And basically uh, clients lived in the place. And it had this tremendous home field advantage that you get people up there. You have an executive chef that is that is uh, uh, making meals for you. You know every meal that you have there uh, in this wonderful environment. You know surrounded by nature uh, where you're spending your time working on your own business. 
And one of the reasons you need so few people is the leverage model is not to have lots of little consulting bees hanging around, but to leverage the, the client themselves that they have to do the work. And we're guiding them. You guide transformations. They'd actually charge for a sales call, right? Here's another great learning point. They charge for a sales call. You want to become a member of Storizen and have us work with you. You come up to Storizen for 24 hours. We'll charge you X amount of dollars to be able to do that, you know, basically to cover our costs. And uh, we'll show you the place. We'll let you kick the tires. We'll show you our methodology. You tell us about your business, what you're looking for. At the end of it, we give you a proposal. Here's the proposal, right? So it is a paid sales call where they're charging admission for the experience. And then they want to charge for outcomes. Now, in this case, what they did, now there, there are some consulting companies that will charge for outcomes by saying, we'll measure your market share or your revenue increase or your expense decrease. And, and there are some valid things you can measure and do outcome-based pricing that way. In Streisand's case, what Gary wanted to do is charge a transformation guarantee. The 25% of Streisand fees are completely at the client's discretion. That they can pay all of it or they can pay none of it based on did Storizen do what they said they would do? Did they get out of it the outcome that they wanted? In over 15 years of being in business, only two clients never paid at all. And even though any one of them could have just said, we're just going to give them a haircut. We're going to take that 25%. We're not going to pay them. We didn't have to tell them why. Hey, let's do this, right? And now and part of it was, was uh, Rochelle, what you talked about was how it changes the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you have this relationship, you're emotionally bonded. It was part of, of the reason. Uh, part of the reason is because you recognize that it's your own work. It's not Streisand's work. They're just the guide. It's your own work. If it didn't work, it's because you failed. And then part of the reason is Streisand did a great job and you got out of it so much that even in a short amount of time that you're able to use and change your your business. So all of that were folded in together, but also related to uh, your point, Jonathan, about rejecting clients in that there were over that same period, you know, three or four clients that I'm trying to, I, I, if, if there are any, we outright rejected, I don't know. There might've been, but there are three or four clients where we took the transformation guarantee away. (laughs) (laughs) And usually it's because they may, they want us to do it at their place instead of our place. Two of those, I remember, were billionaires, right? They're billionaires running their businesses. They're like, no, 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 you come to me. (laughs) And I said, okay, we can do it. We can do a great job, but we know we can't do as good a job as when we've controlled the entire experience, where we've put in the the intentionality we have on on all of it. So we took the transformation guarantee away in in a few cases. And then they could then reject, say, well, if we don't have the transformation guarantee, we don't want to do it, right? And then, okay, that's fine. Right. So, you know, there are all these, these different ways to do it. And, so, and that, that transformation guarantee is another way of charging for outcomes without doing a, you know, a, a specific measurement. I do another podcast called Ditching Hourly that's all about pricing, just about pricing. And we could probably do an entire episode of that. But, you know, in the time I we have left. I want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. In the time we have left, how would somebody in a situation like you just described, was the pricing for each aspirant in this case custom specific or or was it basically like you just it's like high and we just give the same price to everybody no it was it was custom I mean, we, you know we're always we always have to practice what we preach and we haven't talked about customization but customization is at the dna of the experience economy so anyway you've got to uh customize what you do for them so there are basically there were three or four different like i'll call them standard uh, engagements, right? But then everyone 
was, you know, could be different and you could shuffle them together. You can do different elements of each. Did you want this? Did you want that? You know, we'd never present them, I think, with more than two options, but sometimes we would do. Usually it's just one, like based on what we're hearing from you, what you want, how much time you want to spend, what you're looking out of it and so forth. We would present one option and we'd have this spreadsheet of all the different options that we could do. And, and if they were a little more price sensitive, we might take away a few things and then take that off of the final price and so forth, including like we, one of the things we did is we hired professional actors to be there to play these explorers, you know, that, that you would be greeted by Galileo. Uh, you might meet Einstein during your, your stay or you know, even a, a uh, Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King. You, when it came time, when the, the signature moment of the experience is this declaration which just describes the theme of your experience and puts it out in a, you know, a couple of pages of prose. And we would have, we would have somebody who would take parchment and calligraphy your personal de- your company declaration on this. And it would be Thomas Jefferson that would introduce it to you and get you to come up and sign. You know, again, if they're pricing, we might take one or two of those away and that. So, um, you know, sometimes we'd want to, they'd want to do an experience expedition where we'd go to a city and we'd experience it as a consumer, go to a Build-A-Bear, go to an Apple store, an American Girl place, and so forth, and generate ideas that we could, and principles, basically, that we could use in, in our business. So, you know, so there are all these are different modules, which is key to customization is modularize your offerings. And then we put them together. And generally, the only time we'd like, generally, we'd have like two options, like if you wanted to include an employee experience as well. You know, then we could do that, you know, for this extra amount where it wouldn't just be your customer experience, it'd be an em- employee experience. <laughs> so it's like super remarkable. Like that, I'm sure there's like anybody that went through that, I'm sure talks about it like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like crazy. Well, I know we're running up against time, so I want to be um, conscious of that. So before we wrap up, I want to say a quick thanks to Scott Gould for introducing us in the first place. Very, very glad that we got a chance to talk. And where should people go to find out more maybe about your course or your other books? You have a bunch of other great books that we didn't even have a chance to talk about today. Yeah, you can go to our website, which is strategichorizons, with an S, dot com, strategic horizons. And we talk about our books there, our offerings, which includes a, a four and a half day immersion in the experience economy called a, you know, an experience economy expert certification course. Uh, and then, you know, introduces you to Jim and I and what we do and how we go about it. So that's the, the best place. You can also find me on Twitter simply at at Joe Pine, J-O-E-P-I-N-E, uh, and communicate that way. Anybody wants to link in with me, I'll link in and we can have a discussion there as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Joe. This has been fabulous. Thank, All right, thank you, you, Joe. Uh, thanks, Rochelle. Jonathan. All right, everybody. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.